This is an ABC podcast. Judy Ryan grew up in the country in Wangaratta and she raised her own kids just up the road in Wodonga on the border of Victoria and New South Wales. Judy was used to living in a community where people looked out for one another and she was also raised with a good dose of that country woman attitude. If something needs fixing, get to it. Then in 2012, Judy and her husband moved to Abbotsford in inner-city Melbourne. This was a very different world. When Judy walked home, she'd check each side of the laneway behind her house, looking between parked cars and behind wheelie bins, afraid of what she might find. In the kitchen, washing up after dinner, her ears would prick up when she'd hear the next-door neighbour's hose turn on. The area was a magnet for heroin users, and overdoses were common with people dying right there on the street. And Judy was always on edge in case she needed to jump in and call triple zero and try and save a life. Then one young man, one sunny day, was Judy's breaking point. She began a grassroots campaign to create Victoria's first safe injecting facility. And this is the story she tells in her book, You Talk, We Die. Hi, Judy. Hello, Sarah. Tell me what it was that you saw on that sunny day back in in 2016. What was at your back gate? There was a young man in his early 20s slumped at the step that leads up to my my gate. He was well-dressed. He had a backpack beside him. He was handsome. I remember him to be quite a good-looking young man. I had seen him before, so he was familiar. Um, One of the regulars who used my laneway to inject uh, heroin. And I came around and I was carrying my canvas shopping bags and I was chatting on my phone, multitasking with my sister. And I came around and I saw him there slumped. And I dropped my bags and went to him to see if he was alive, and he was. I could feel that he was breathing, and I rang triple O again. I had done that many times before, and reported that there was this young man at my laneway. And uh, they came probably within five to ten minutes, but I stayed with him. Whilst I was with him, I kept checking his pupils and checking his pulse and talk to him, telling him to stay with me. And I could hear the ambulance coming and I said to him, you know, stay with me, help is on its way. Um, And fortunately, they did appear in my laneway. The ambulance and the paramedics arrived and then took over from me, um, administering naloxone, which it reverses an opioid overdose. I then, you know, moved away and they resuscitated him and they eventually moved him from my gate near to the nearby laneway where, the, where their ambulance was and put him in the back of the ambulance. And I, I realised that I actually hadn't been breathing. It's always such a shock, even though you see... Residents in the area that I lived in saw this often. It still is a shock. Um, You're never really prepared for it. And I always think of the person being some part of somebody's family, being a brother or a grandson or a nephew or a boyfriend, Um, and just imagining what they would think if they knew this was going on right next to my gate. Anyway, so fortunately... For him and his family and loved ones, he was resuscitated that day. And I remember putting the key in my gate and I stepped into my backyard and my legs were shaking. And I really, I felt quite exhausted. It's just such a, it's such a visceral response when you see somebody and then you stay with them and you're calling the ambulance and you're staying with them until help arrives. It's really, it can take a couple of days to really get over that. And um, that was just a sort of common occurrence for not just me, but for many of my neighbours and other people who lived in our community. 
And why why is that part of Melbourne such a, a popular spot for injecting drug users? Oh, inner city um, Richmond, Abbotsford, where I live, is a very well-known drug uh, supply area. I did ask a police, an old police officer one day, why this area? And he said, for three reasons. One, that there is an incredibly good public transport network that all sort of connects at that spot. So we have trams, trains and buses all connecting at North Richmond in Victoria Street. Also, it's a very busy strip with shops and uh, cafes and things. So there's a lot of movement and people who are, have, in, are in possession of illicit substances can mix in with the throng. And the third thing is because it's a really old part of Melbourne, like other parts like Fitzroy and Collingwood, they're all very inner city, they have really small, tight, unusual uh, laneways bluestone laneways with a lot of shrubbery hanging over the fences, which provides fabulous sort of coverage for people who are in there injecting on their own. And they're doing that for a couple of reasons. One, because they've just bought the drugs around Victoria Street and they need to inject straight away, which is something I learned, Sarah, when I first moved there, that you d they don't buy drugs and then hop on a tram and go somewhere else to use it. As soon as they get it, they need to inject. And secondly, what they're doing is illegal because they're using an illicit substance and they are, they are, you know, protecting themselves from the authorities because they can be arrested for possession and then they're put in the back of a police wagon and, you know, end up in the, in the criminal system. So it's very important for them to run and hide and to really take risks with their lives just purely for being hidden and on their own. You'd see people on the streets or in the laneways, but even once you were back inside your own your own house, what kind of things would you be able to hear from your home that would let you know people were shooting up somewhere nearby? I have a really beautiful laneway on the north side of my property, and so where my office is is my window opens out onto it. It's quite a high window, but I can I can't see people, but I can hear them. And you hear people coming in and they speak in very low tones if they're with a friend and if they're not with a friend, you can still hear them shuffling in and you can hear rappers and you can hear just them moving about. Um, when they're with somebody, it actually isn't quite as nerve-wracking because you think, well, there's two of them there. If one of them overdoses, the other one could call out. But when they're on their own, it's particularly nerve-wracking. So you do listen and the, I have got a spot where I do check and see who's there and how many there are. Um, now, I also respect their privacy. I don't want them to think they're being watched, but I do monitor it and, you know, five, ten minutes later, I do go and have another look and often they've, they've gone by then or if they're still there, just wait and see what happens. The other thing that's really significant is the sound of sirens. Emergency services uh, vehicles, so fire trucks, which are often first responders to the call-outs to drug overdose, uh, because if ambulances aren't available, the fireys can go out and they can administer CPR or naloxone. And then uh, ambulance sirens, sirens, and occasionally police um, sirens as well. So. It's a very noisy place to, to live in and the neighbours, we talk about living in a war zone because it was just always that sense of um, stress and urgency and, you know, somebody, again, has overdosed. When I hear my neighbour's hose turn on, I think, OK, they're doing the watering that I should be doing. What goes through your mind when you hear your neighbour's hose? Well, um, it... it, it it is indicative of sometimes where people have are using um, water to mix their their drugs. That doesn't happen so much anymore because people in the area have actually removed the tops off their taps to prevent people from doing that. Uh, that was very common a few years before, but people just had the residents just had to deal with this this issue of finding coming home and finding someone overdosed and the tap running. So an easy um, solution to that was just to remove the top from the tap. What other sorts of things were your neighbours doing to try to 
prevent people from shooting up a, a, around their home? So a, a really classic vision is in people's car carports where they'd park their car as close to the edge of the garage as they could because if you have any gap between the car and the wall, that's a really fabulous spot for somebody to go in there and inject in private. And if they overdose, you can't see them, you know, so they potentially could die beside your car. If you do find them, it's still then really hard to get the paramedics in there to attend to them. So, so that's one of the things people did and they'd often park their cars close to each other for the same reason. Uh, we also had in blocks of flats, they would have bin areas that they would put a gate on and then padlock it because hiding behind rubbish bins is a perfect screen for somebody injecting. And if there was a vacant block, you know, there'd be rubbish, perhaps wood, accumulate and then people would go in behind the rubbish. So it was a constant case of ringing the, the local council to have an empty space locked up or an old house that had access. It had to be closed up because once people get into those places, it's really deadly. And so residents were on edge the whole time managing this human crisis in our in our area. You were clearly scared for people who were injecting drugs, scared for, for people having overdoses. Were you also scared of the drug users who were in your neighbourhood? Look, it's an interesting question. I personally have never been scared by people using drugs. Often it, they get the drugs, they buy them, and then their focus is finding somewhere to use it. Um, often, if they've used heroin, it's it's a, sed a sedating drug, so they don't. They're sort of more in a more relaxed frame of mind. So, and we heroin is the main drug that's injected in our area. Were people angry at this drug use? Were like were your neighbours pissed off about having to think about where they parked their car and taking the top off their taps and and seeing what their kids would walk past on the way to school? I I didn't speak to people who were angry with the drug users. I think there was, there was anger that the authorities knew about this issue, and for a long time, for years, in fact, and. There was nothing going on. That was sort of where the angle was. And there was a feeling that the management of this issue was being outsourced to the residents. So we would find someone slumped and we would be, have to be proactive about it because we didn't want people dying in our streets, which is what was happening. Was that something that you faced up close, Judy? Well, I did uh, have a, a very stressful and tragic experience in May 2017. I was just coming home from work, doing what everybody does. I hopped off the tram and I was walking up one of the streets thinking what we were having for dinner and a young man, I could hear, hear him calling out and I looked across the street and he was standing outside a pretty awful public toilet block that the locals call the unsupervised injecting facility sort of had a push button and people would go in there and they'd close the button and then they would inject in there and often overdose there. So it was very common. So I ran over to him and beside him was his partner, a youngish woman in her 20s who was not moving, breathing much. He was really distressed. Uh, he told me her name. I was calling her name. I couldn't get her eyes to open, so I couldn't see her pupils. Her lips were quite blue. She was quite cool to touch. I took off my coat and I put it over her and I rang triple O. In the meantime, he was absolutely distressed and it was near busy Victoria Street and I was trying to hang on to him so he wouldn't fall out into the street. My heart was racing. I felt really, really hyper-stressed um, and it felt like about 10 minutes before the ambulance sirens but it probably wasn't that long and I kept calling to her to stay with me 
And anyway, I could tell by the paramedics attending to her that she she died. And it was just uh, it was just shocking. You know, I really I really felt overwhelmed that this was happening in this beautiful part of Melbourne and I was I got pretty angry then because you just think it's so close to Parliament House and to you know all of these parts of Melbourne that are beautiful and here she is on the street dead and anyway the the um, paramedics dealt with her and they gave me back my coat which was still on her so I put it on and I was freezing I but I didn't notice until then and then I heard the local school bell go and there was a primary school up the road in Lithgow Street, the Abbotsford Primary School, and I just knew those little kids would be coming past this scene and I just I felt really sick and thought, oh, my God. There was nothing we could do to prevent them from seeing this situation. And I really thought about them when they got home to their mums and dads and said, you know, we saw a dead lady on the footpath near school today. And I just thought this is just not acceptable. It's so not acceptable. Back in 2016, when you found that young man slumped outside your gate, Judy, when you really felt this has to stop, what did you do next? Where did you start? I, I had to determine who was going to do this. <laughs> so, you know, we all say they should do something about this. We all do it, all the time. And as the day wore on, after I'd had been with the young man outside my gate, that afternoon I actually Googled drug overdoses, heroin, you know, and it came up with the Sydney injecting room. And I trawled through it and I thought, that is what we need here. Why did you come to think that a safe injecting facility was an important part of addressing this? Because a safe injecting facility is a harm reduction measure. And from what I read from Sydney and overseas was that a, a safe injecting facility is a, is a health centre where people can take illegal drugs so they don't sell the drugs in these facilities. People take their drugs into the facilities they use them there. If they overdose, they're, they're managed there by nurses. But the thing about them is not only do people stay alive, but then they are offered um, services and follow-up care for their addiction if they're interested. So hepatitis treatment, they've got wound care, they're offered methadone or a thing called pharmacotherapy, which is another form of managing addiction. And what happens is people in those facilities, the staff, create a relationship with these people who are often lonely. They're constantly on the run. They have hectic lives. Maybe they've fallen out with their families. It's a place to go where they are not judged, where they are cared for, and they can they can take... They take the pressure of our emergency services, you know, ambulances and police, and they're given an opportunity to, you know, look at their lives and think about what they might do to help themselves. So there I was, well, they should do something and get one of those here. And that night I literally was brushing my teeth, looking in the mirror, and I just went, well... You're the one that's got her dander up about this. You're the one that feels passionately. You probably <laughs> have to do something about it. As you were beginning to find out what might be involved in a safe injecting facility, you read a letter in The Age. Why did it strike you? There was this letter, and it was an anonymous letter from someone from Ocean Grove, which is down near Geelong, and it was a letter saying that our grandson died in North Richmond, Abbotsford this year. So it was at the end of 2016, December 2016. And they said our grandson died there 
and we know had he used his drugs in a supervised injecting facility, he would not have died. And they were calling on the Victorian government to, to do something about this, as the government did about road fatalities all those years ago when they brought in seatbelts and 0.05 blood alcohol limits for drivers. So they're harm reduction measures too that we all accept now. It's not controversial. It was at the time. But, you know, we, that was the road toll. We've now got a drug toll. You know, we need to do something about it. And I read that letter and it made me sad for two particular reasons. One, this family, it was just before Christmas, and I thought about them leading up to Christmas having lost their beautiful grandson. And obviously he was much loved by the time of this letter. But I also felt that the fact that they signed it anonymous, it just highlights another major problem with drug addiction and that is stigma. Because families don't want people to know that they've got this issue in their family. We need to change that because it, it is deadly when people can't talk about it just pushes the issue further underground. So that was a really, it was very powerful. And I remember as I was getting ready for Christmas lunch that day, we had family coming over. It was all going to be happy. And I just wept. I just wept thinking of these people and how they must be feeling today. So it was very visceral, that letter. A few months later, as your campaign to establish a safe injecting facility was gaining steam and being covered in the media... You got an email from a woman named Loretta. What did she say to you? She said, Judy, I have read the article in The Age today and I just really want to support you and your team with your campaign. My son died in Abbotsford in August last year and he would have survived had he been in a supervised injecting facility. My family and I support what you're doing and if there's anything we can do to help, let me know. Yours sincerely, Loretta Gabriel. And I read it about 10 times. I cried. It took me an hour or so. And then I responded and I sent out condolences and thanked her so much for following up and um, said, I'd love to meet with you and talk with you and let's share your story which was fine. And yes, we, I can do that. And I live near Geelong, she said. So I said, let's do it by phone and I'm free on Thursday. So terrific. We locked that in. The following day, I just the penny dropped. I thought maybe it was her family that had written that letter from Ocean Grove because it's near Geelong. So I sent her an email and I said, random question, Loretta, would your son have been the the subject of that letter to the age in December. And she said, yes, that was my son, Sam. And uh, we just, it was just oh, amazing. And I just said, oh, my God, I can't believe I've found you. You know, I thought about you at Christmas and your family and it was just a moment. And anyway, we subsequently had a phone conversation and it was, we just cried. It was just amazing. And she said, I want to speak about this. We've had enough. Other families shouldn't have to go through this. We love Sam. We did everything we could for him. And he still died. And she said, "We, what can we do? What role did she and her family play in the, the rally that you organised? So our um, residence group organised a March to Save Lives rally to coincide with International Overdose Awareness Day. And our group made a decision to focus the day on people who had lost family or loved members to heroin overdoses. So it wasn't going to be celebrities or politicians. It was all about focusing everybody's minds on why we are doing this, and that is because people are dying in our streets. So we contacted Loretta and a few other people, and we asked them to speak at our rally if they if they wanted to, and if they felt strong enough, and they could pull out at the last minute. So when they said yes, I said, now, you know, if you wake up on the morning and think, oh, my God, I just want to stay in bed under the doona, I'm not doing that. I said, that's fine. And so we put the word out that anybody 
with somebody who had died from an overdose to meet us in a little coffee shop, meet us at nine, we'll have a coffee, we'll talk about how we're feeling, you'll meet each other and bring a photo of your loved one and you will lead the march. Well, we were inundated. People came and they had these beautiful photos and Loretta was there and others and it was one of those cathartic experiences where they acknowledge each other and they're members of a group that no one wants to be a member of, you know. They were hugging and rubbing shoulders and crying and but getting strength from each other because they totally understood not just the dying but the journey through addiction, which is very traumatising for families. And that day those people led the, the rally and they spoke at the rally and the impact it had on the community was extraordinary. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So you were leading this campaign, Judy, talking to other residents, talking to local shop owners, talking to media and politicians. In your heart of hearts, did you actually think it would happen, that there would be a safe injecting facility? The answer is no. I did not think we would succeed for a long time. I just felt because it had been, well, not even on the back burner, it hadn't even rated much in any political conversation for years. So I really thought the likelihood was minimal. However, that year, there were also three coroner's reports and each of the coroners recommended that the Minister for Mental Health in Victoria open a supervised injecting room trial. So a trial is just a let's try it out a temporary situation. We also had a situation where a couple of really high-profile police, a retiring police commissioner, Ken Lay, and a retiring head of the police union, which is a very powerful union in Victoria, Ron Idles, both retired that year and both of them said, as they were heading out the door, you know, we should have done something about drug addiction and supervised injecting facilities, which was was great, but it's a bit frustrating as they're walking out the door, you know, you hope that somebody would think about doing it while they're in the job. But each time the government, the Premier said, no, this won't be happening, we didn't go to the last election with this as a policy, no, it won't be happening. So the answer to the question is no, we didn't think that it would happen. So where were you when you found out it was approved? Um, Well, I was actually at home. It was a Monday night and I got a call from a a journalist, a very veteran journalist, Brendan Donoghue, rang me one night and said, Judy, great news, Cabinet's just approved a supervising injecting facility, but it's very confidential. You're not allowed to say anything. And I went, oh, well, you know about it. So, And then about 10 minutes later, Richard Wynn, our local member, rang me and said, Judy, look, it's very confidential. You're not allowed to say anything, but we're opening an injecting <laughs> room. And then Fiona Pattons rang me about two minutes after. I said, oh, now, Judy, can you please be available to be at the press conference tomorrow in North Richmond at 10 o'clock, but, you know, not, don't, you're not allowed to say anything. Like, I thought, oh, righto. So and I went online and sure enough, some of the mainstream media outlets did have say, yes, it looks like it's happening. So even though I was told not to tell anybody, I immediately told everybody and contacted our group and said, party at our place, come over, this is happening. And on a Monday night... We had about 15 members come to our place and it was just, it was so surreal because we really did think we had another few years to to battle this out, you know, but um, they wouldn't have done it if they didn't think there was resident support. I think that the rally was a really significant part of that conversation in the Cabinet. They knew that the residents wanted it and uh, that, I think, helped push 
push it over the line. Were you there the day it opened? Oh, I certainly was. I didn't mean to be because I thought that they, the people at North Richmond Community Health where the, the building where the injecting room was opening as a little interim facility for 12 months before it moved into its own building, I just thought they'd think I was so obsessive about it and I was sort of a bit embarrassed. And it was the most beautiful Saturday and I was at home and I must have been such a pain in the neck and John said, look, go up there, just, <laughs> just, just go. Come on, you want to go. So I said, oh, but what will they think? They'll think I'm just, you know. Anyway, I went up there and I, there's, outside the North Richmond Community Health Centre, it's a very grassy area and there's high-rise apartments and beautiful, beautiful eucalypt trees. And I stood behind one, in fact, Sarah, I hid behind one so people wouldn't see me. Because that looks much less crazy, oh, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> is that it was Judy just, hiding yeah, behind that tree? I think I can see Judy there with her red <laughs> lipstick on, you know. But, and I, I, was, I was sprung. But what was great, <laughs> and, and, you know, that was fine. And, they look, they totally got it. So um, CEO of North Richmond Community Health, Demos Kruskos, said, told me there'd been um, 50, already that morning there'd been 50 visits and, overdoses had been reversed and he told me about a, an elder from the local Indigenous community had been the first person to go into the facility. He popped his head in the door and said, oh, is it true that we can use our drugs in here? And they said, yes, you can come in here and use your drugs. And he did a little impromptu welcome to country, which everybody said was really emotional because, you know, the Indigenous community are so sadly a big part of the addiction issue and he was thrilled. He said, you know, our mob has really needed this health centre. So that was a really joyous occasion. And I really, you know, I always equate it to how you're pregnant and then you have a baby and you just can't wait to see it and you want to sm sniff its head. <laughs> well, that was sort of how I felt. That was you at the safe and, injecting yes, facility. I, know. <laughs> I mean, people probably think, oh, my God. But, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was a really extraordinary moment in my life that day. Yeah. As I say, you grew up far from inner city Melbourne in, in Wangaratta. Where do you come in the lineup of kids in your family? Um, Sarah, I'm the seventh of eight. Our mum and dad had six kids and gave away all their baby stuff because that was enough. And then they had me five years later and then they had my sister Gabriel 18 months after, after that. And it was, look, it was a, a great experience. I mean, growing up in a big family is a great learning or apprenticeship for life, really. You do learn to uh, hold your own and to speak up, especially if you're one of the youngest, you know. You really have to fight for, for space and, you know. What changed in your family when you were five? When I was five in 1966, my father, Morris, um, died from a heart attack at home on the back veranda of our house in Wangaratta. Um, my mother, Mary, was 42 and they had the eight kids. The oldest was 18. My sister, Rosemary, and the youngest was three. My younger sister, Gabriel. I don't remember my father, Morris, um, at all. About two months after your father died, there was a knock at the front door and your mum answered it. What happened? There was a man there who was, um, you know, struggling with life and a bit down and out. And he, it was July and he was cold. Mum had never seen him before. And he asked mum for, if she had any clothes. And um, she said yes. And she went to the wardrobe where our father's clothes were and she gave him dad's clothes and the shoes, his shoes, and they all fitted perfectly. And to me, it was one of many examples of mum. Just, she had a saying about no matter how badly you think you are, there's always someone worse off, always. And while she was struggling with her, the trauma in her life, she was able to still help that man that day. I've had guests on the show, Judy, who've lost a parent and then that parent's kind of almost been erased from the family memory. You know, they're not talked about, photos are put away. What was it like in your house after your father passed away? 
My mother and father, Mary and Morris, really did love each other. They'd been through war and depression and drought, a really bad drought. So when they finally married in 1946, you know, they were only in their early 20s and they pretty much immediately started having kids. And, um, and so she talked about him all the time. Morris this and Morris that and Morris here and Morris there and <laughs> Morris would say this and you just like Morris and, you know. And to the extent that, you know, it's 57 years since he's died, I have three grown-up children, they talk about Morris. Like, it's just <laughs> that incredible um, enduring legacy of our mothers to just love this man so much. And she lived till she was 79 and I said, did you ever think about remarrying? And she said, never, never. Well, when he died suddenly at, at as you say, just 43 and your mum has these eight kids from three or so up to 18... What state was the family in financially? Oh, uh, look, it was a very precarious situation. There wasn't much money at all. Um, How did she make ends meet? Well, firstly, she had a beautifully supportive family, so farming family from the Riverina in New South Wales who would provide meat and vegetables and petrol and provide her a car and that sort of thing. They were fabulous. Uh, but over the years, she did lots of things. She had boarders. This is sort of when the older kids went off to uni in Melbourne and my sisters did nursing. And, you know, she would have these kids from all around the district who wanted to go to school or become an apprentice and train in Wangaratta. She was very into education. She saw it as your ticket to life and she used to say no one can take it from you no matter how bad things are you've got your ticket and she didn't have one she there was no opportunity for her growing up in the riverina in the drought of the 1930s to have tertiary education so she really valued that so she opened up her home to these people who would pay for their kids to come and stay at Mary Ryan's place in Murdoch Road Wangaratta and that's what she did she also opened a little um, hairdressing salon near us, which was amazing because she didn't, she wasn't a hairdresser, but she employed a woman called Joyce and Joyce did all the perms and cut the hair. But mum, I don't know how she made money out of it because she did uh, specials for all widows and their kids, you know, you just think, well, you know, that's great, but you've got to feed us. And But yeah. Did you have to help out? Oh yeah, we loved it too. And she used to bring the towels home, you know, you'd have the towels in the salon and she'd have all these towels on the clothesline and my sister and I would have to fold them and we'd take them down in our bike baskets back to the shop. And But it was just great. It was groovy that our mum had a shop, you know, and there was a counter and people were there and all that sort of thing. So she did that. And up until Dad's death, she'd never really managed money or put petrol in the car or done anything like that. It was all done. But once he died, she had to learn all of that. And she realised how how smart she was with money. You know, she was very thrifty. She balanced her books. She she understood about budgeting. You know, she became quite across business management. Well, she took on a, a major role in a community credit union. How did that come about? My parents were very involved in the local Catholic parish and it was in an area that was of Wangaratta that was quite working class and people had lots of children Sarah, like those families, there was lots of them. And there was a feeling that a credit cooperative could work at a more community-based savings facility. So mum and dad were involved in that in a sort of perfunctory way. They ran ran it out of the, a shed at the local church on a Sunday. And then dad died. And then mum was asked to join an, another credit union to make it a bigger business and she was terrified. They said, Mary, we really want you to be involved in this because you've had that early experience with Morris. There's a classic story where there was a meeting in a hall one night and mum went to it and she saw the light on in the meeting room and just was freaked out and thought, oh, I can't do this. And she drove around Wangaratta and eventually 
She thought, oh, get over yourself, walked in, and she was there for nine years. She became a director of the new credit union. She was extraordinary, really, and she used to leave Gabriel and I at home at night while she would go out and see families and talk to them about their money management and organising their budgets and... And then if they couldn't get the money they needed that way, then she'd organise a loan through the credit cooperative. And she was a natural at this, which is, you know, I often think about if Dad hadn't died, maybe she would never have realised that incredible potential she had. And over the years, people used to say, your mother was just a godsend to our family because she enabled us to have money to raise our kids and have a standard of living that was fine, which we wouldn't have had. As well as the the eight kids of her own, what other children did she help care for? She was very uh, involved with so-called unmarried mothers. So often they were young girls who had found out they were pregnant and their families were ashamed and they were sort of shunted off somewhere. And mum took a huge amount of, not pity, but she was, this is not right. So she would uh, support them. She would mother them. When they had their baby, she'd care for them. That was one part of her life. Another one, that this was just beautiful, was there were a lot of fathers who died prematurely in that era of the 60s with heart issues that now we put stents in and, you know, we look at cholesterol and all that sort of thing, smoking. But in those days, it was prevalent. In fact, a lot of families I was friends with, their fathers had died But mum was very mindful of motherless families. So she felt that if the mother died, then the just the basic functioning of the families would be quite different to if the father died. So for for us, and even with my siblings now, I talk about when dad died because I don't really remember, but they say, look, we still had food on the table, our beds were still changed, the washing was done, you know, there were flowers on the table... She didn't miss a beat. Whereas we said if mum had died and dad, well, it just would have been a totally different kettle of fish. And there was one particular experience where a local family where the mother died and there were four boys and there was a little girl who was my age and mum would have her over on Saturday and she'd play with my sister and I and then we'd all have a bath together and mum would wash our hair and make sure it was all squeaky clean and she would wash her clothes and make sure they were all beautifully laundered and lots of food. And she just knew once a week this little girl would get that care and modelling, you know, that this is how we care for our bodies and ourselves. And But I, I just thought it was fun, you know. We thought it was great. But that's sort of the story behind that. It was really beautiful, like just, yeah, that, it just was a real indicator of how she thought about these things. And, you know, she wasn't lovey-dovey, but her love was unconditional, but she was tough. She had very high standards. She could get really cross with you if you, you know, misbehave, which we didn't really because we knew there was no point really that she'd always win. I remember she said to me once towards the end of her life how much she loved us and she said, I loved all of you. You all had a little bit of Morris in you, you know, Morris he picked the right woman all those years ago, <laughs> I must say. But she said, you all had a little bit of your father. And she said, I love you all to bits. And she said, oh, that'll continue when I've died. Which, going back to the campaign, I had some times in that campaign that I found very, very difficult. I was terrified. I really thought, I can't do this. This is beyond my ability And I just channeled her and said, righto, you know, that's what you said. Can you just give me a bit now because I'm needing the tanks a bit empty? And I just felt her strength very much. So, yes, she was a very loving mother. You explained that your motivation, Judy, in in spearheading that campaign for the safe injecting facility came out of responding to a need that you saw on the streets around you. But like many people, your family has also been touched by the pain of drug addiction. How so? So I have two nephews uh, who have died from heroin overdose. Ewan died in Brisbane in 1996. He was 21. And Richard died in Richmond in 2003 and he was 28. 
I was raising my own children in the country, so I wasn't so involved in the journeys of my two sisters. Um, but obviously I knew that there were, there were issues surrounding the, the drug use. Both of the boys, Richard and Ewan, were beautiful. Really, of course, they were very creative types, probably really bored at school, just square pegs in round holes, looking out windows, not engaged by the usual curriculum, but beautiful artists, you know, and Richard was a really good cook. Their deaths were shocking, really shocking, and because, you know, I'd known them when they were babies and, you know, little kids, gorgeous little kids, and they are beautiful adults too. I loved when we used to go to Melbourne and see Ewan and he'd bring draw these cartoon characters, which our kids loved, you know, and they were so clever and smart. And it's just, it's such tragedy, you know, that was such a long time ago. And he'd be in his late 40s now and he was 21 when he died. So I suppose I, I did not run the campaign because of that, but it gave me an understanding of the sorrow for families and also the stigma, you know, still talking about it, you know, what do we say? Um, so everybody knew that was close to the family, but more broadly, I don't think they probably knew. Yeah, it was it, it was an experience that sadly so many families have and like ours and Loretta and her family, you lose those beautiful young people what did your sisters think, your, your nephews' mums, think about the campaign for the safe injecting facility? I did ask them often how they were feeling. Were they struggling with it? They've both been absolutely wonderful and I love them dearly and I really, I wish things had worked out differently for them. That safe injecting facility in North Richmond has been open for nearly six years now. How's it doing? It's doing exactly what it should be doing, and that is providing safe place for people to inject. It's saving lives. It's getting uh, people into support services. It's building relationships with very marginalised, stigmatised people. I was there about 10 days ago. I took a group of people through on a tour of the facility, um, which was led by one of the extraordinary nurses that works there. Um, and the staff, the leadership are always thinking of new op opportunities for the clients. So they're looking at food preparation, artworks, uh, sports opportunities, and it's all about building community. So people are benefiting from relationships with other people. So it is doing very well. Interestingly, there is a an expert review panel that has been reviewing it over the last 12 months because that's the legal requirement as set down by the government. That expert review panel report will be released in the next couple of months, sooner rather than later, hopefully, because the trial ends in June this year. So the recommendation may be that it won't be extended, which we can't imagine what that would look like. And that would mean our campaign would continue. Uh, Has it succeeded in, in getting drug users off the streets, which was part of the, the impetus right back at the beginning? It has. A big indicator of that has been the stats that have come out of the emergency services call-outs. So there's been an approximately 75% reduction in call-outs for people who have overdosed in our area. And that is the major indicator that people are not overdosing in the street. What kind of relationships have you formed with people who use the facility, who are, who are drug users? What friends have you found? You know, I have met some of the most beautiful human beings that use that injecting room. They are so usually grateful and humbled by the fact that anybody cares about them, that the facility was was sought after by the public and set up for them. I met a woman about 10 days ago who told me that when she heard about the injecting room, she cried. She said, wow, people care about us. And she's met me and told me that. Last night I got an email from a woman I don't know who's 20 
And she said, thank you for setting up the injecting room. My life has been saved. The support I've got from beautiful human beings makes me realise that I'm valued. And this is a constant theme. We don't know what happens in people's lives. I'm not here to judge anybody. And I just think it it is part of our humanity that we do care for each other in our and members of our community, which includes people with addiction, among other things. And that's a sort of civilised society that I want to live in. So the way you're describing it, the the drug users are part of this community. They're Mm. not just a problem the community Mm, wants to kick out. They're part of it. That's right. And many people have been coming there for years. That's where they go. They've been going there to get their drugs and use their drugs there longer than I've lived there. So, and that's why people know people, you know, you just, you, you get to have relationships and you say hi and so communities are made up of many people. The other issue, of course, is where we live is very gentrified now. It's very close to the city, beautiful old buildings, people move into warehouses, it's all very groovy. So it's that real clash now of inner city wealth versus the people that have always been there. So does it it feel like this community maybe has more in common with the ones you grew up in in regional Australia than than you at first thought? Absolutely, Sarah. I really felt the challenge for me at the beginning was to create community, but it was there. It just hadn't had, you know, the issue to bring them out to join together and say, we need to do this. And it absolutely is there. And look, I just love it. I just love it. I love it. And because it is in a city, it's just that much harder because people work all over the place. Whereas in country towns, everybody sort of seems to work more locally. So this is a bit harder, but it's no less impressive. Judy, thank you so much for, for sharing your story on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. Broadcast, podcast, you're listening to Conversations. Judy Ryan was my guest on Conversations today and Judy's book is You Talk, We Die. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.